Welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast on tax and legal issues. Today we are joined by Gráinne Quinn, Barrister at Law, who works predominantly on the Western Circuit and has a general practice working mainly in employment law. Gráinne is going to discuss some employment cases of note, which will be of interest to practitioners. Gronia, it's great to have you on the podcast today where we're discussing some recent significant decisions in the area of employment law. Could we start with the case of Power versus HSE, which concerned issues surrounding a contract of indefinite duration? Would you mind talking us through that case? No problem, Gronia. The facts of the case were that Mr. Power was the chief financial officer of the company. And in 2014, he was asked to act up as a chief executive on an interim basis. This was extended by a number of fixed term contracts over the next four years. When the position was advertised, Mr. Power applied, but was unsuccessful. He then took a case under the Protection of Employees Fixed Term Work Act 2003. As you're aware, Gronje, that piece of legislation states that if a fixed term contract is renewed over four years, then the employee is entitled to a contract of indefinite duration. So that's all straightforward so far. But what about people who already have a permanent contract and are then asked to fill in a different role? Well, prior to this decision, the Labour Court was of the view that if you had a permanent contract like Mr. Power, then you were not covered by that piece of legislation. Their view was that if the act was solely to protect people who would be out of a job at the conclusion of the fixed term contract, therefore Mr Power had no standing. The matter was appealed to the High Court before Mr Justice Garrett Simons, who overturned the Labour Court decision. In reaching this decision, Mr Justice Simons looked at the definition and purpose of the legislation. He looked at EU law and the Court of Justice case law. He also looked at the plain and ordinary interpretation of the Act. He concluded that just because Mr Power was a permanent employee did not preclude him from obtaining the benefit of this piece of legislation. The court directed that the issue be returned to the Labour Court so it could determine whether there was an objective justification for refusing to give Mr Power a contract of indefinite duration. However, the HSC has appealed that decision and the Supreme Court granted leave to appeal to it. The matter is currently being case managed by Mr Justice Wolfe and we're awaiting the outcome of that decision. Until then, the High Court decision stands and can be relied on. And Gronia, will this prove uh, beneficial to those employees working under contracts of indefinite duration? Yes, it'll be usually beneficial because now, regardless of whether you have a permanent contract or not, you can rely on this piece of legislation. In fact, I recently relied on it in a victimisation case. It will also be particularly relevant to public servants or civil servants as they are regularly asked to act up in new roles. And Gronia, the case might also give us some guidelines as to the definition of an employee, as the court said that the Labour Court had mistakenly decided that a person could only qualify as a fixed term employee if the entire employment relationship was based on a fixed term contract. Is that correct? Yeah, Mr. Justice Simons looked at the definition of the employee under this particular piece of legislation, and he found there was no distinction between employees on fixed term contracts versus those on permanent contracts. Both can now rely on this piece of legislation. On the particular facts of the case, the court focused on Mr. Power's employment as interim chief executive. It found this had altered the contract of employment between the parties as a result of those fixed term contracts. 
Now, an employee can be both a permanent employee and a fixed-term employee. That's a sea change in the area of employment law. Prior to this, the Labour Court had misconstrued the definition of a fixed-term employee as one whose contracts expires at the end of a fixed term or fixed purpose. Thanks so much for that, Gronia. O'Reilly versus DCU then was a case before the WRC under the Employment Equality Act, raising issues of sexual harassment. Could you talk us through that case? Yes, Rachel. Miss O'Reilly started working as the Foundation Programme Coordinator at DCU's International Office in November 2017 on a three-year contract. Miss O'Reilly then attended a probation meeting in September 2018 and afterwards another staff member made a comment about an abstract painting on an office wall. The comment was not in the reported decision. The complainant, Miss O'Reilly, found that comment particularly offensive and argued that it amounted to sexual harassment directed at her. Miss O'Reilly then raised this as an issue of harassment on the 1st of October 2018. She raised a subsequent complaint of sexual harassment on the 22nd of October. Two days later, on the 24th, she was told that she had not passed her probation and her employment was ultimately terminated on the 5th of November. Miss O'Reilly took a number of complaints to the Workplace Relations Commission under the Employment Equality Act, including for victimisation, sexual harassment and harassment. DCU argued that the comment was not sexual harassment and neither was it directed at the complainant. The adjudicator disagreed. They found that the comment was of a sexual nature, gender specific and inappropriate. Because of this, the adjudicator found that Miss O'Reilly had raised a prima facie case of sexual harassment. Then the burden turned to the employer, DCU. They successfully rebutted this by having effective policies and procedures in place to prevent harassment. After that, the adjudicator looked at the issue of victimisation and the dismissal by the complainant. Particularly, she looked at the sequence of events the proximity of the complaint to the dismissal and whether adverse treatment could be inferred from that. She particularly found that the probation meeting in October lacked objectivity or fairness and that the decision had already been made prior to this meeting. In conclusion, she awarded the complainant €27,500 for victimisation. And so then what were the key findings as a result of this case? Rachel, this case is very important as it reminds us that in cases like this under equality legislation, the burden firstly rests on the employee to prove their case to a prima facie level. It's another reminder that meetings need to be fair and objective with absolutely no predetermination. It also emphasises the importance of having proper policies and procedures in place so that you can use these to rebut prima facie cases. So, then should this case be a red flag to employers going forward? Yes, Rachel. Particularly, you should look at the timing of events, how these will be perceived objectively, because that's how an adjudicator will look at the matter. It's also really important to remember that there should be absolutely no predetermination in matters such as probation or dismissal. It also emphasises the need for proper policies and procedures and for these to be updated and implemented regularly. Otherwise, if you don't follow these red lines, then you would end up paying a heavy price, as DCU did in this case. Gronia, we're going to talk now about a case raising issues around a protected disclosure. Yes, Gronia, as you're aware, the Protected Disclosure Act from 2014 is a far-reaching piece of legislation. 
if you're dismissed as an employee and can come within the parameters of the piece of legislation, the court can order that your salary and benefits be paid until the Workplace Relations Commission case is finalised in respect of unfair dismissals. Clearly, this has huge financial implications for the employer. If you're successful in getting this order from the court, it can be a real bargaining tool to bring about settlement between the parties. As cases can be taken at the circuit court, there have been very few reported decisions up until recently. The only one prior to the two cases I'm about to talk about was one from Judge Francis Comerford in Duggan and Clark versus Lifeline Ambulance. However, this year things changed as there was a decision in Barnier and Rostera Irish Meats Group Limited. Here, the High Court looked at whether a communication qualified as a protected disclosure under the Act. Mr Barnier began his employment in October 2000. He left that employment in June 2015 to immigrate. That unfortunately didn't work out for him and in early July 2015 he returned. On the 3rd of July he was informed by his former employer that they were short-staffed for back scoring and he could start work immediately. In September 2015, he asked his health and safety officer if he could change roles as he was getting pain due to this particular type of work backscoring. Ultimately, he was dismissed in September 2015. He brought a case of unfair dismissal and under the 2014 legislation. The employer argued that this complaint to his health and safety officer did not disclose a relevant wrongdoing. In respect of his unfair dismissals case, he did not have the one year service that we know you need to come within the confines of this particular piece of legislation. So the WRC dismissed his case. The matter was appealed then to the Labour Court. The Labour Court looked at the issue of what is a protected disclosure. They felt that it's a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, there is a grievance. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a protected disclosure. Taking the two at their extremes, there is a possibility of an overlap between the two. But on the particular facts of this case, it was a grievance, not a protected disclosure. As he had raised the issue in September 2015, the Labour Court found that his complaint in September 2015 did not outline any wrongdoing, which is necessary under the legislation. The matter then was appealed on a point of law to the High Court, where Miss Justice O'Regan dealt with it. She found there was no error of law by the Labour Court. The matter was further appealed to the Supreme Court, who have granted leave. However, that decision has not yet been concluded, but will be very interesting, as it will be the first time that the Supreme Court has dealt with this piece of legislation. There's another case under this particular piece of legislation, which is worth looking at, the decision of Clark versus CGL Food Services Limited. Here, Mr. Clark was a financial controller. In September 2017, he raised concerns over payments to directors, which seemed to exceed the agreed limit with the bank. He raised further concerns in January and February 2018 in relation to personal spending on the company credit card, false invoices, unvouched expenses, revenue issues and food safety issues. Mr. Clark maintained the difficulties developed in his workplace relationships at this time. He raised a formal grievance in October 2018. There were performance reviews then in December 2018, January, February and March of 2019. Ultimately, these were investigated and in April 2019, Mr. Clark was suspended. A disciplinary hearing took place in May, which was chaired by the investigator. And as you're aware, Gronya, this is obviously a big no-no. 
He ultimately was dismissed as a result of this disciplinary hearing. In July of that year, he took action in the circuit court seeking interim relief, which was granted. The court ordered that his employer would maintain his pay and benefits pending the determination of the complaint before the WRC. Because the WRC case was adjourned a number of times, the circuit court order was appealed to the High Court and this is the first time that such an order was appealed to the High Court. The issue before the High Court was whether because the employee had not stated words to the effect that this was a protected disclosure, did that amount to a protected disclosure under the legislation? Agronia, this is a quite a significant case in that it's the first High Court judgment on interim relief under the 2014 Act. Yeah, it's the first of its kind and it's the first really to have a proper interpretation of the 2014 Act. What was clear from the decision, though, was that protected disclosures are not a linear process. You don't need to mention the legislation or even the words protected disclosure because obviously some employees are not going to have that knowledge. What the court stated is that it's only after the victimisation, dismissal or other adverse consequences arise that one has to retrospectively figure out what really happened and analyse it in the statutory language. So what the court's effectively saying there, Gronje, is that it's only with the benefit of hindsight and looking back that one can see the connection between your complaint or protected disclosure and your dismissal. And that's how it arises. Gronje, the case... I think was important because it highlighted that there's no necessity for a disclosure to be stated to be a protected disclosure, which may be news to some practitioners. Yes, and I think that's very helpful for employees because obviously they might not even be aware that this piece of legislation is out there. The court was very clear. Employees do not need to use the statutory language or legalistic language that we're familiar with from the piece of legislation. It's only with the benefit of hindsight that one can say, oh, that was a protected disclosure. No more than the O'Reilly decision that we've already looked at, the timing is very relevant in these types of cases. And it can only be sometimes with the benefit of hindsight that we can make that connection between the protected disclosure and the dismissal. And Gronia, I think as well, you were saying to me earlier that the case was significant because there are eight factors to consider in a performance-based dismissal. Yes, Gronia, it's a really good reminder of how performance-based dismissals will be evaluated by courts. Some of the factors that the court relied on included when the performance-related issues merged, the form of dismissal, In this particular case, it was a summary dismissal, which you know normally only arises for gross misconduct cases. It also looked at the proposed method of disciplinary hearing. Here, it was suggested that the hearing would be chaired by an independent barrister. That wasn't followed through. In fact, the independence of the disciplinary hearing was really questioned because the investigator and the person who chaired the disciplinary hearing were the same person. This is clearly not ideal, where the investigator had already made adverse findings against the employee. So it cannot be said that they were an independent, impartial person. It's another example of predetermination. They also looked at how the disciplinary hearing was conducted. And in this particular case, it was notable that no questions at all were asked in the meeting. The court also looked at who ultimately made the decision to dismiss Mr. Clark. They were not provided with an answer to this. Thanks for that, Grania. We have a UK case where an employee refused to wear a face covering. This is topical given the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yes, Rachel. The case of Kabilis versus Ken Foods Limited came before the UK Employment Tribunal, and it's well worth a look for its applicability to Irish law. At the time, the UK government's advice was that masks were optional. They were not mandatory, nor did the employer have a mandatory requirement for masks to be worn. In the employee handbook, however, it stated that the employee must follow the customer's advices when on site and their instructions. Mr. Kabulus was a driver for Ken Foods Limited, and one of their big customers had a requirement that when people were on site, they had to wear their masks. Even though Kabulus was in a cab of a lorry, he still was required by that customer to wear his mask. Mr. Kabulus refused to wear the mask, and the customer then refused to allow him attend at their site. As a result, the employer dismissed him. The matter then came before the UK Employment Tribunal in respect of an unfair dismissal action. What the tribunal concluded was that whilst this action was not one that all employers may take, it was within the range of reasonable actions for an employer to take following the actions of the employee. And therefore, they found that this dismissal was a fair dismissal. So what were the key findings in this case? And Do you think they would apply in Ireland? Yes, Rachel, I think it's very applicable to the situation in Ireland. Firstly, one of the key things to take away from it is that the employee handbook is so critical to analysing what is the conditions and contract of employment between the parties. What it says in it can be really analysed and was in this particular case. What's also really important is that the tribunal looked at the facts of the case and what the customer required of the employer and what standards they required. So particularly in healthcare situations, it could be a situation going forward that masks are no longer required are mandated by our government advice, but that they may retain being important in particular work settings. And I think that this decision is very applicable to that. Thanks, Gráinne. What about the area of personal injuries actions arising from the employment setting? Has there been any developments in this area? Rachel, there's been two significant decisions in this area. The first one, Kunzo versus Keypack Longford Unlimited Company, came before Mr Justice Barr in the High Court. Here, the plaintiff was an employee of the defendant working as a boner in a meat factory. He suffered a back injury in the course of his employment, and he then took a personal injury action as a result of that. As would be pretty standard in these types of cases, he sought a discovery request, which included seeking the accident report. All very standard yet. The usual arguments arose before Mr Justice Barr. Firstly, he argued the accident report form was not covered by legal professional privilege, as was argued by the defendant. He stated it couldn't be as it was prepared prior to any letter of claim and it must be prepared to comply with health and safety legislation. On the other hand, the defendant claimed that as they had a high volume of claims arising from accidents at their workplace, they treated all claims or all accidents as if a claim may arise. The court looked at the particular accident report and it referred to the fact that it states on it that this was prepared in contemplation of litigation, which wouldn't be standard on all accident reports. Mr Justice Barr ultimately found that in these particular circumstances, this accident report was covered by legal professional privilege. He ruled that there does not need to be any proceedings in being or even threatened for the privilege to arise. It is sufficient to reasonably anticipate proceedings. 
Going forward, how should practitioners approach discovery requests for accident reports as a result of this decision? Well, Rachel, it'll very much depend on the particular accident report firm. There's a clear distinction between a tick the box exercise and a detailed investigation, which appears to be what occurred in this particular case. The latter will be more likely to be covered by privilege. Other things to consider are whether solicitors were instructed soon after the accident and whether it states litigation is anticipated or words to that effect. Gwonya, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been really enjoyable. That's it for another episode of Oberta Dicta. For more employment, case analysis and updates, as well as access to Bloomsbury Professionals Employment Law Books, you can access BPRO. Thank you to Gronya Quinn BL for joining us on this episode, and we will be back with another episode soon.